I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Fan City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in the series, Season of the Spirit, Season of the Flesh. The road ahead can seem unknowable and discouraging. The New Testament routinely speaks to disciples of Jesus in similar seasons of chaos and stress, assuring Christians down throughout the centuries that we have been given what we need for life in the kingdom. I thought recently about a uh, special introduction to the director's cut of the 1986 action sci-fi masterwork, Aliens. And in it, in this special introduction, director James Cameron describes the two-hour, 37-minute cut of the movie as, and I quote, 40 miles of bad road, which I always thought was a very catchy way of describing the movie. And he meant, I think, that this longer version of the film was also more relentlessly intense. I had that phrase come to mind these last couple of weeks. I started to think about that description from James Cameron. Really, a few, month, or a few months into this whole thing, how, how long has it been now? 40 miles of bad road, 100 miles of bad road, 200 miles. For more than a month now, we've been exploring the dichotomy of 2020, the season of the spirit in the season of the flesh. In the Bible's vocabulary, the flesh, what Kiana's translation just rendered, the sinful nature, it's that twisting darkness that is in all of us. And most of us, I suspect, for example, don't want to say things that aren't true. But we do that sometimes. Deep down in our souls, most of us don't want to dedicate more time to something like Netflix or Instagram than we do our spiritual formation. Many would much rather be patient and kind when we are actively being rude or short. But if things come more naturally, this thing is going to distract. I don't know if it's distracting you guys, but I have problems with focus already, so it's driving me insane. Uh, hey, Patrick, what should I do? Should I just grab these microphones up here? This one, Levi's? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can't see your face, so I can just look at it, or I'll listen for your voice. Pardon me. Pardon me, Levi. You're going to have to get something new, I guess. Okay, does that work? Sorry, I'll take Oh, great, okay. Yeah, and then I'm sure it looks great too. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, so most of us don't want to actually be rude. We're not thinking to ourselves, this makes me feel great about myself and the world around me to be short-tempered and, uh, and come off as short and annoyed. Few people want to be known for things like selfishness or flakiness or rudeness, and yet sometimes we are selfish, or flaky, or rude. And this is what the Bible calls the flesh. God made the world free, and we have exercised that freedom to do other than the things God wants us to do. We want to do other than God wants us to do. So part of our freedom results in this nagging gravitational pull toward destruction. But rather than abandon us to our own self-imposed collapse, God sent the Spirit of Jesus himself to take up residence in his followers, empowering us to overcome the flesh, the sinful nature, when mere willpower and self-effort 
does not suffice. But the world is set up in such a way that it often acts as a backup generator for the flesh. The frustrations and difficulties and agonies of life in the world can energize all of our less admirable qualities and tendencies. But those things, the difficulties and agonies of life in the world, can also energize our connectedness to the Spirit of God within us. And many of you know already that the world can do this one way or the other. The difference is that the latter only happens when we create rhythms and systems of connection with God that enable this to happen. So the big difference is that the former, treacheries of life in the world, energizing the flesh, that happens by default. That's the baseline. If we are in passive bypass mode, we're typically affected by the worse, or for the worse, by the ugliness of life in a broken world. To be empowered by the Spirit, on the other hand, requires our engagement. It does not happen by default. It's not like a mustering up willpower. That tends to burn out. It's about learning and disciplining yourself to live by the resources of a power completely beyond yourself. A couple of weeks ago, I likened it to borrowing tools from Scott Barguera's garage. So I have some tools at my house, not a ton. My friend Scott down the road has generously made his very impressive collection of power tools readily available to me. Probably even more so now that I keep going on about it in front of people. He doesn't want to look bad and... You know, so I'm sure that privilege is going to only increase with all this uh, talking about that I'm doing. So the tools aren't mine. They don't belong to me. But I get to use them when I go through Scott. He's yet to deny me the privilege. So eventually I learned to think of my own limited toolbox as not much of a problem to speak of. I actually have whatever I need via the Barguer's garage. So it is with the resources of the Spirit. You do not have what it takes to be like Jesus in and of yourself, but you can train and discipline yourself to memorize and normalize the habits of drawing near to God to access the readily available resources of the Spirit of God, ever available in and to you. Now is a pretty great time to talk about all that, what with the plague and mass hysteria and racism and violence and police brutality and murder in the streets and riots and protests and now wildfires consuming homes and people and animals with their toxic smoke hanging like a polluting veil over entire cities for days, weeks at a time. And we are fast approaching the grim pyrotechnics of election season. Oh boy. This can be, in spite of all that, the season of the Spirit. Or, by default, it will be the season of the flesh. We spent these past six weeks on Sunday evenings and in our Van City communities talking about how we can draw on those resources of the Spirit in what sometimes feels like a bleak chapter in our shared history. And tonight, we're going to complete the text. As Kiana read moments ago, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The New Testament also calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus, meaning these attributes of a person who keeps in step with the Spirit are the attributes of our Master and Teacher, 
Jesus himself. Jesus is loving and peaceful. Jesus shows disciplined patience and restraint, embodies and demonstrates kindness. Jesus is our benchmark for goodness and covenant faithfulness. And Jesus, the good shepherd, is gentle with his beloved apprentices, you and I. And he walks in the ways of self-control so that we can learn to do likewise. Now, as always, it comes back to the three goals of discipleship, to be with Jesus is goal number one, so that we can become like Jesus over time in order to eventually do the things that Jesus did. The list and our series concludes with gentleness and self-control. The word my Bible translates as gentleness is prowatus in Greek. It can be translated to describe mildness or humility or even meekness. The God of the universe embodied in the flesh, the one who has been given authority over all things, mild, humble, and meek, or gentle. Our alpha male or girl boss, go-getter, find-your-own-truth culture doesn't know what to do with an idea like meekness. We think of it as weak. But that interpretation of being meek and mild hits an obvious roadblock when you apply it to the innate character of an all-powerful God. One word study I read this week translated this idea as exercising God's strength under his control. Or gentleness is demonstrating power without undue harshness. The gentleness of God flows from his infinite power. Though God has all the power, he chooses to be gentle. So think of the way an adult lovingly cradles a newborn baby. Clearly, the scale of power is overwhelmingly tipped toward the adult who towers over this small, helpless thing, but who chooses to exercise that surpassing power via tender gentleness. Parents learn to exercise that restraint as their children begin to master the art of testing their parents' patience. Though we have the power to be louder, more aggressive, more physically imposing over our children, Parents, ideally, learn to deny that expression of their power, and this gesture of restraint is an act of gentleness, which is why Robert Plummer writes this, biblical meekness is usually not simple gentleness and humility, but those qualities displayed with integrity during times of trial. This implies a deliberate absorbing of pain and hardship rather than redirecting trials and trauma outward toward other people. It's not bottling things up in the unhealthy sense. Again, think of the parent-child analogy. The parent, who is more powerful, chooses to take some pain and frustration onto themselves rather than taking it out on their children. And God graciously grants us other more peaceful and healthy ways to process those trials. Again, Plummer argues the opposite of meekness is a harsh and proud wickedness that insists on immediate self-vindication. Yes, once again, meekness as the attribute of Jesus. My mind is drawn to these words of our master, so beautiful as to become haunting. He said, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke or my teaching upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, inspired by this text, Dane Ortland says of the passage, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. We're not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We're not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he's joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly. Meekness... Gentleness is not celebrated in our culture. Power is celebrated. Influence is celebrated. Confidence, force, money, career, status, followers. Just as they are today in Jesus' time, the gentle were often seen as weak, not go-getters, not type A, seizure, truth, influencers. And yet, in the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus' list of unlikely blessings, it's the meek he pronounces, who will inherit the earth? To whom will God give the world? To those who are gentle and lowly. And remember, it was little children, little children that Jesus blessed and said, the kingdom belongs to them. Jesus, who having realized that all authority in heaven and on earth had been entrusted to him, demonstrates his magnificent divine power by scrubbing dirt and sweat from the filthy feet of his friends. The power of God is servant power. Jesus, the gentle Messiah who rejected the military violence that was expected of him to instead die for his enemies with all the power of the Spirit of God at his disposal. The power of God is nonviolent power, a power that truly believes that to endure suffering is greater than to reach for violent power. To trust God's judgment is better than to take matters into our own hands. Does gentleness mark the way we are responding as individuals and as a community to 2020? In the way we bear inconvenience and suffering, in the way we discuss sensitive or divisive social issues or in the way that we talk online? Does gentleness color the way we receive correction? Does gentleness compel our concern for others in the way we express frustration or sadness? Your gentleness or lack thereof is about more than you. It's about who in your life is in need of the gentleness of God expressed through you. Could be a friend or spouse or your kids or your community, your workplace, your neighbors. And the idea is that when we draw near to God, to his gentle heart, that gentleness radiates into our own lives and we find rest for our souls in the language of Jesus himself. Rest for the soul sounds pretty good these days. Now, before we end all this, all of these disciplines, the, the work of keeping in step with the Spirit so that our lives can produce the fruit of the Spirit, 
It all requires, it presupposes, the final addition to Paul's list, which is self-control. And I think most of us, or a lot of us anyway, bristle at the sound of those words coupled in this way, self-control. Not because we hate the idea. Most people recognize the admirable attributes of self-control, but, but because self-control is difficult. And many of us are really bad at it. Desire, in every worldview, is an issue to resolve. In Buddhism, desire makes you suffer, so you've got to get rid of it. Accept the desire to have no desire. That never goes away. In hedonism, desire is the big thing, so you indulge it. That's how you find happiness. With religious asceticism, desire is bad, so you should repress it, deny it at all costs. But in apprenticeship to Jesus, desire is neither the source of suffering in and of itself, nor always good, nor always bad. The way of spiritual formation is to reorder and redirect broken desire. A scholar named Alan Mann described our culture as the society of project self. Meaning, he said, society exists as a blank canvas for my own self-definition, expression, and enjoyment. Meaning, the self determines unique autonomous preferences of right and wrong, and anyone or anything that denies my paradigm of right and wrong is oppression. The gratification of self overshadows the effects of pursuing that gratification on others and on the world. This is the world in which we live, and it's gaudy and brash and well-represented across the radically divided socio-political landscape. It's in the unbelievably selfish refusal to even attempt basic safety measures in pandemic world, because what about my civil liberties? It's in the redefining of sexuality and gender as the unique truth of the individual and the demonizing of anyone and everyone who deviates from the imposed groupthink. It's in the ugly and unthinking brutality of cancel culture or the mob mentality, the vain posturing and virtue signaling but culture, cultural commentators and psychologists and theologians, even our own experience, all tell us that we tend to lash out at what we see in the world when it reflects, in some way, our own inner conflict. It doesn't mean that any time we react to something we don't like, it's because of our own stuff, per se. But I think we all know that that happens a lot. I've had people reach out to me about things in the world or, or things that I say in my teachings with which they've taken issue and I believe it's thoughtful and measured and open-minded. There's also people who reach out to me about things in the world or things that I say in my teachings. And with, with all due respect, what I think I hear is actually conviction that's being repressed. And I know because I've done it. Something agitates that sense in us that we're not right. And we react defensively, preferring to project that uncomfortable sense of conviction outward onto someone else rather than open the nagging little box of our own shortcomings and address what's inside. It's usually an infection of idols, often to do with race or politics or money or something like smartphone use, those sensitive subjects that make our blood pressure spike. And in these ways, we betray a lack of self-control, that there are parts of ourselves, be it appetites or irritability or idolatry, that have not been mastered by the lordship of Jesus. These past few months, I've been waking up when it's still dark outside, and I begin my morning routine while my house and my neighborhood are quiet and still. And I've been thinking to say these words of Paul 
quietly to myself. I will not be mastered by anything. Paul's words from a letter he wrote to a church in Corinth speak to me because he wrote to people who, like myself, crave freedom and autonomy, who don't like being told what to do. That's me to a fault. So he wrote to me, he said, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. Pastor and author John Tyson defines biblical self-control as the sacrificial stewardship of the self for the sake of others. We've talked uh, quite a bit about two paradigms of freedom over the years. The way that our cultural script for freedom is usually freedom from, meaning freedom from the ideas and guidelines and rules of other people. We get to do what we want to do, and that's freedom. But the Bible has this completely different idea of freedom as not freedom from, but freedom to. God has graciously provided freedom to become our true spiritually formed selves in order to utilize our full potential for the self-sacrificial good of others and of the world. Not freedom from the rules of other people, but freedom to serve others with radically self-sacrificial love. And in this, we emulate God himself and our master and Lord Jesus. Galatians 5, our passage these past few weeks, uses a, a literary device called a chiasm. The passage is framed in by its thesis statement, as it were. So it begins with, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. There's that word again. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed. In verse 16, we read, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. Listen, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then in the middle of the passage, you've got the outworking of the Spirit versus the outworking of the flesh, or vice versa, rather, the outworking of the flesh and then the outworking of the Spirit. And then framed in from the top and then in the bottom in verse 22, after the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Since we live by the Spirit, in verse 25, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Paul writes that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So in order to do all these things, in order to be able to walk with the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, you have to destroy your own selfish inclinations or crucify the flesh, which sounds much cooler, so that you can live in love. And self-control is last on the list of the Spirit's fruit because it is the mechanism by which self-sacrificial love becomes possible at all. So all these things, the last couple of months, talking about love and then joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all of these things are only possible when the Spirit empowers us for self-sacrificial stewardship of ourselves for the sake of other people. Though it absolutely flies in the face of the story we're told by the world around us, Jesus' art of self-denial and self-control is not oppression, nor even restriction of the true self. It is the counterintuitive gateway to the freedom by which we actually become 
our truest selves. And this kind of thing doesn't happen by accident. It will not happen just by showing up to church or reading your Bible from time to time. Biblical self-control is cultivated over time. And that cultivation often feels like warfare. I think in particular at a time like this one. Many argue that in this battle we're particular, particularly susceptible to the efforts of the enemy when we're bored or hungry or angry or lonely or tired. I'm sure you could add in a few other things, similar things as well. And it is, isn't it sobering that this seems to describe these last six or seven months so well, being bored or hungry or angry or lonely or tired? So again, John Tyson talks about replacing our old natural willpower method of resistance with something that he calls identity resistance. It's actually a fascinating paradigm. He uses smoking as a way to explain, saying if someone were trying to quit smoking and someone waltzed up to them and offered them a cigarette, in the willpower method of resistance, you might say something like, man, I really want to, but I'm trying to quit. In essence, my desire is for the cigarette because I am a smoker, but I'm trying to use my willpower to stifle it. But with identity resistance, when offered the same hypothetical cigarette, one might simply reply, I don't smoke, or I am not a smoker. Now, obviously, this is about a lot more than how one rejects a cigarette, but hopefully you understand the difference in thinking and disposition. After we've claimed identity over willpower, we begin to emphasize environment over willpower as well. This is why addicts often move away from drug connections, because your environment matters. It's one reason that we emphasize community so much at Van City as a regular environment for connection and accountability that makes it very difficult to hide in your brokenness. If you actually embrace, not even as a professional, not even going at it 110%, if you just nominally embrace the modes of community, it becomes a very difficult place to hide. And that's the reason so many people bail out or flee from community. This is why people often experience the most success with something like a new lifestyle routine, a diet or fitness or something like that, when they approach those things with a friend to do them together. It's why something like AA is communal, why women and men wanting freedom from pornography get rid of their smartphones. Why, it's why willpower isn't enough. You have to create environments that empower and facilitate holy self-control. That's what much of this series has come down to. We said it in week one. This is about creating an overall environment that spirit loves to dwell in. Because I live with my wife, Abby, our house stays pretty dang clean, which is great for me. If ever there's like a hoodie and a single dinosaur toy on the floor, she'll say that she's so stressed by the overwhelming mess that she can't function as a human being. And that's not, I'd love to say that's hyperbole, but it's not that actual thing really happened. But because Abby is also an excellent hostess, when she expects company, she really cleans. Not to impress anyone or to create an illusion of perfection, but because she genuinely wants her company to feel welcomed by the environment. You see where I'm going with this? We have the ability to beautify the environments of our lives, to create places where the Holy Spirit loves to be. So we recognize a new identity, not just willpower, but who we are. And then we steward our environment and we begin to leverage what we have, which comes down to at least our gifts 
our abilities, our time is huge, our energy, of course, the things to which we dedicate our attention, and our money. We dedicate thoughtful concern to utilizing each of these things for the sake of other people and the kingdom of God. So the idea is to look at this list, or our gifts, time, energy, attention, and money, and ask yourself, are you thoughtfully engaging each of these things for the sake of God's kingdom? Have you thought about your gifting and your abilities and how to leverage that for the kingdom of God, for the good of other people? Have you thought about how your time breaks out in a day, a week, a month, and how to use that time for the good of others? Have you thought about how much energy you dedicate to one thing or another and how to make sure that enough of it is a resource for the kingdom of God? Have you thought about the attention that you dedicate to different things throughout your day and where it is most necessary and most beneficial for others? And then, of course, your money. Have you gone through and budgeted so that you're sure that you give to others rather than hoarding for yourself for the sake of the kingdom of God? And if the answer is, no, I actually haven't thought through all those things or I haven't thought through each of those things deliberately for the sake of the kingdom, then I would say we have some thoughtful prayer ahead of us to figure out where to begin, start somewhere, update your rule of life. All of these things are made possible in us by the gracious provision of God's Spirit. It's not like God is saying, hey, you know, something that's really intimidating. Go build a house and then... He's just leaving you to learn how to find tools and resources and funding all by yourself. It's more like God is saying, we have a big job to do, so here are the tools. I will put them in your hand. Here are the resources. I will bring them into your life. Here is my guidance. I will write it on your heart and deposit it, direct deposit into your thinking and feeling by my spirit. To walk in this way of life during this season of the flesh demands that we actually believe that these things are true. That it is really hard to keep in step with the Spirit. So hard, in fact, that you cannot do it by yourself. And that's not bad news. That's good news because God will provide a way by His Spirit in us. A.W. Tozer famously argued that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's why I've made theology much of my life's work. I, I believe the things that we believe about God matter. So I was thinking about this long quote from Dane Ortland this week. He wrote this, Meek, humble, gentle, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. The cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus sees the fallenness of the world, all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. 
we likely have more bad road ahead of us, at least in some sense. Not all bad, I'm sure, but it'll likely be rough from time to time. And we can't do this, keep in step with the Spirit as individuals and families and as a community, if we don't believe that God wants this for us, that he wants to provide for us, that he wants to pour out his spirit and that that spirit wants to resource us for life in the kingdom. Aware of all your trash, of all your shortcomings and failures, exactly where you're at, that he wants to bring you into a life that is fully in step with his spirit so that you can resource, access, and enjoy the fruits of the spirit, the joy and the peace and the patience and on down the list. And then we'll begin to worship again. So let me pray and invite God's Spirit to speak. Father, I think many of us feel like that beloved and famous character in the gospel story that says, Lord, I believe and help me overcome my unbelief. When it comes to our faithful expectation in your goodness and in your character, we believe but we are in need of you to help us overcome our unbelief. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.